and welcome to the CMC Creative Keynote with children's writer and present children's laureate, Mallory Blackman. We're very lucky to get Mallory to Sheffield tonight, because if you said she was busy, it would be an understatement. Her role as laureate is, is for two years, and she's just halfway through it. It's taken her the length and breadth of the country. She has talked to over 15,000 people in schools, libraries, bookshops, and various other venues. She's made television appearances and has got used to railway peppermint tea. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, she's still a writer and trying to write her next novel. When she was appointed Children's Laureate, one of the selection committee, Channel 4's Krishnan Gurumurthy, said of her, Mallory Blackman's stories of ripping, daring, and reach out to young people who might otherwise spend all their time on video games and the internet. The panel are unanimous in believing she will be a brilliant and passionate children's laureate. In reply, Mallory said, A love of books has opened so many doors for me. Stories have inspired me and taught me to aspire. I've been a professional author for over 20 years, so I feel now is the time to give something back. I hope to instill in every child I meet my love and enthusiasm for reading and stories. So, how did her career start? Mallory was born in 1962 in London and trained in computer science, working in computing before publishing her first book at the age of 28. She has since written 60 books for children and young adults. They range from children's novels, young adult novels, picture books, short stories, and readers for early and more confident readers. In addition, she has written television scripts, including episodes of the Gone But Not Forgotten BBC children's series Biker Grove, plus original dramas for CITV and BBC Education. Her adaptation of her novel Pickheart Boy, which tells the story of 13-year-old Cameron, who needs a heart transplant, won several awards, including a BAFTA for Best Children's Drama in 2000. Her stage play, The Amazing Birthday, was performed at the Polka Theatre in 2002. Although Mallory does write across the age range, there's no doubt that most of her passion and success is in novels for older children, including Hacker, Thief, and her best-known books for young adults, the multi-award-winning Noughts and Crosses series, which includes Noughts and Crosses, Knife Edge, Checkmate, and Double Cross. Although most of Mallory's characters are black, until this series, she had, not she had chosen not to foreground the issue of race or ethnic identity, but rather to depict characters without an overt focus on race. With Lots and Crosses, she addressed racial issues more overtly, depicting a world in which black people, or crosses, are the ruling elite, and white people, or noughts, are confined to minority status denied legal rights, and work in menial jobs. The novels focus on the frustrated love affair between a black girl, Sefi, and a white boy, Cameron. Her most recent novel is Noble Conflict. In 2004, she also wrote a novel entirely in verse, Cloud Busting, which won a Smarties Book Prize, Silver Award, the same year. In 2007, she edited Unheard Voices, an anthology of stories and poems to commemorate the bicentenary anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade 
and in 2009, she contributed to Free? Question mark, a book of stories celebrating human rights. In 2005, she was honoured with the Eleanor Fargin Award in recognition of her distinguished contribution to the world of children's books. And in 2008, she was awarded the OBE. As children's laureate, she has got underway the first ever Young Adult Literature Convention, hosted at the London Film and Comic Con next week. It's part of her campaign to support fiction for young adults in the UK during her two-year term in the post. She will act as a curator for the two-day convention, uniting authors and publishers throughout the UK community. So, not only a championing children's laureate, but a very busy writer and someone passionate about writing for children. It's very much in line with this year's theme of Child at Heart. Mallory wrote for the website, I believe stories are nourishment for the mind and soul. So how do we ensure that we all get a seat at the table? How do we ensure we have a creative voice? How do we navigate our telling our stories in collaboration with others? What can we do to better explore and share our stories? My keynote will be a personal journey through finding my own voice and not being afraid to use it. Mallory has entitled her keynote, The Right to be Seen, The Need to be Heard, or her added and intriguing subtitle of We Are the Stories We Eat. Please welcome the very wonderful Mallory Black. to Sue, Anna and Ed for inviting me to be a part of this conference today. And I thought what I would do is give you a very personal journey, um, my own personal journey to where I am today, this stage today, literally. Um, so let's start with the first one. I, um, to just roll back, I, used, I started reading when I was about three or four. My mum said from the time I could read, I always had my nose in a book. I loved reading. But my dad had some very peculiar ideas about fiction. Now, my mum and dad were really hot on education. Their thing was, if you want to get anywhere in this country, you need to have a good education behind you. Absolutely, absolutely believed in that. But my, my dad had some very strange ideas about fiction. And every time I said, Dad, can I have some money to buy a fiction book? He'd say, well, no, I'm not giving you money for that. He said, it's not real. It's not true. You need to live in a real world, Mallory. So we had a set of encyclopedias at home. We had books on the human body, space in the universe, animals, and so forth. No, very few fiction books. So as a consequence, my mum took me to the, my local library when I was about six. And, um, and I just loved it. I walked in and I thought, oh my God, all these fiction books. And they're free. It was wonderful. So from the, about the time I was seven odd, I'd make myself a packed lunch. And I'd say, right, I'll see you later, Mum. And she'd say, where are you going? And I said, I'm off to the library. And this was practically every Saturday. And she said, OK, then see you later. Because this was in the days when children had a lot more um, independence and a lot less experience. So she said, oh, I'll see you later then. And off I'd go. And I would spend all day at my local library reading as many books as I could. And then when they were chucking people out, I would take out as many books as I could on my ticket and try and make them last till the following Saturday. But you know what? In all those uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of books I read between the ages of sort of seven and 14 when I had my first Saturday job and I could start buying books for myself, 
I didn't read a single book that featured a black child like me. Not one. And in fact, the first book I read that featured a black character was The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, and that was when I was 21. So, you know, so as far as I was concerned, it was kind of, I loved reading, and I put myself in those stories, but I was very aware that I was not reflected in the descriptions and the illustrations of the characters I was reading in those books. And it's one of those things, without anyone telling you explicitly, you take on a message that, this, I took on the message that the world I love, this world of literature and art and so forth, was not for me because I couldn't see myself reflected anywhere in it. And I remember when I was eight or nine, the, we, had, um, we were told we were going to have a special assembly. And the teacher said, okay, well, you know, I want you all on your very best behavior. She said, there's an opera company coming in and they're going to do Hansel and Gretel. And we all went, opera? Oh my God. And we thought, this is going to be dreadful. So we all trooped in there, kind of, oh God, this is going to suck. And we, so, so we sat down thinking, oh God, it's going to take forever. And they started, and you could have heard a pin drop. It was this operetta of Hansel and Gretel, and it was magical. And it was one of those light bulb moments for me because I remember watching this and thinking, oh my God, this is an operetta, and I love it. And up until that moment, I had thought that operas were for rich white people, quite frankly. So I was watching this, and I remember the witch coming out and the children sort of creeping up, and, and the witch was terrifying, and they were all, they were, the singing was beautiful, and it was, just, it was just so magical. Even now, it sends a chill down my spine just remembering it. And it was one of those moments when I thought, you know what? No one's going to tell me I can't like opera or I can't like classical music or whatever. It's for me to decide. So it really was a pivotal moment, and I just, you know, thank you to my school for kind of bringing that to us, because I would never, be, we never would have gone to an opera, we would never have gone to an operetta, but they brought it to us, and it made such a difference. And um, so, from the time I was seven or eight, because I, I love reading, I thought, I want to write my own stories, I love writing my own stories. And in fact, I remember once I wrote a poem, and the teacher said, oh, she gave me a sort of 10 out of 10 for it. And she said, there's a parents' evening coming up. She said, you can read your poem at the parents' evening. And it was this poem called The Jungle. And the, last, the only two lines I remember are the last two lines, which was sort of, and the bright and yellow sun giving life to everyone. But she said, you can, you can read it at the parents' evening. So she got me to come up in front of the class. And she said, OK, Mallory, you can practice it in front of the class. And I stood there, and I wouldn't say a word. And then she said, well, come on, Mallory, read it, read it out. And I said, I can't. And she said, why not? And I said, I'm shy. And she, everyone cracked up laughing. I thought, I'm never going to write another word again. But luckily I got over it. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and it was terrifying. But I remember standing up at the parents' evening and reading this poem and getting a huge cheer. And I thought, well, this isn't too bad, actually. You know? <laughs> so, so, um, but, but, but I, so I was always writing stories and poems. And I was so lucky because my English teachers never said, stop wasting school paper. And they would kind of give me encouragement and feedback. And I, knew, and I knew, because I love reading, I made up my mind by the time I was like 10, 11, that I wanted to be an English teacher. I, wanted to, I had it all worked out. I wanted to go to Goldsmiths College. I wanted to do an English and drama degree. And then I wanted to teach English and instill a love of English into, into pu my pupils. And so when I was doing my A-levels, um, my career teacher said, OK, Mallory, what do you want to do? And I told her. I had it all worked out. So I told her exactly what my plan was to go to Goldsmiths and do this. And she looked at me and she said, 
glad people don't become teachers. She said, why don't you be a secretary instead? And I remember looking at her and I said, I don't want to be a secretary. No offence to secretaries, that's not what I wanted to do. So I said, I don't want to be a secretary, I want to be an English teacher. And she said, well, I'm sorry, black people don't do that. And then she said, she said and besides, because she saw my face, and she said, and besides, I don't think you're going to get your English A-level. And I remember looking at her and thinking, oh, I'll show you, you old cow. <laughs> <laughs> and if anything, actually, it made me work even harder. I'm not going to fail this. Not that I've ever failed an English exam in my life, but it did make me work harder. And, um, and, but she said, I'll, I'll give you a reference to go to Polytechnic. And you can do business studies, but you're not going to be an e-teacher. That's not what black people do. So I ended up going and doing a course that I knew was not right for me. I absolutely hated it. And the, the lecturer would be talking about... I'd be in an economics lecture, and the lecturer would be talking about price elasticities or whatever, and I'd be staring out the window thinking, oh, that candle looks like a pork pie, I like it. <laughs> you know, and just daydreaming. And about halfway through the first term, I was rushed to hospital, I had my appendix taken out, and then I had to go back down to London to recuperate. And I hated my course, so I gave up my course, and I applied to Goldsmiths, because by then I had my A-level results, and I got in. So I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So I thought, let me make some money. So I thought, I'll defer entry for a year, work, and then make some money, and then I'll go to Goldsmiths. And I started working at a software house, and I got hooked on computers. <laughs> so I gave up my place at Goldsmiths, and I stayed in computing for 10 years. But when I was in my mid-20s, by that time, I'd, I'd, I was at, working at Reuters, I was a database manager, I was going all around the world, and I was so miserable. I hated it. And I thought, I don't want to spend the rest of my life staring at a computer screen. So what do I do now? I sit and stare at a computer screen, um, but I, which I love. But anyway, but I just thought, I do not want to do this for the rest of my life. And I was a, uh, I had, I was a capital markets database manager, so I had to check treasury prices and gilts. And, and I couldn't care less if they went up, down, or sideways. I thought, you need to find another job, really. So, so I started... Um, I started a, a workshop at the City Lit, and I love the City Lit. I wasn't sure if I could write, I wasn't sure what I could write, but I knew I wanted to, I, I, that's what I wanted to do. So I did a Ways Into Writing workshop, and initially when I started, um, I would, I, every week I would take work, and the tutor would go around the, the room saying, okay, could you read your work out? And every time she got to me, she'd say, Mallory, would you like to read out your work? And I'd say, uh, not this week. No, it's all right, Carol, not this week. And she'd say, um, okay then. And then she'd, next week she'd come to me and say, would you like to read your work, Mallory? And I always brought it, but I never read it. And I'd say, not this week, not this week, Carol, not this week. And she put up with it for a term and a half. And then she said, Mallory, do you want to be a writer? And I said, more than anything else in the world. And then she said, and with apologies to the young ears in the audience, she said, well, you're going to have to shit or get off the pot, love. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and I was mortified. But, you know, everyone's cracking up laughing. And I thought, huh. But you know what? Best piece of advice I've ever had in my entire life. Really was. So, so then after that, I thought, you know what? We're all in the same boat. We all want to share this stuff. So just get on with it. And I did. Thank you so much to that tutor. Because it really was one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard. Um... And so I decided that I'm gonna, I want to write. And then I started a, a writing for children workshop. And I thought, this is what I want to do. Because I'd done writing science fiction. I did a writing plays course. I did a, all at the City Lit. Uh, and then I did um, a writing for children. And I thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And it was also around time I went into a children's bookshop. And I was stunned to see that in all those thousands and thousands of books, there was exactly one book that had a black child on the cover. And it was The Thief in the Village and Other Stories by James Berry. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write children's books. 
And I thought, I'm going to write all the books I'd love to have read as a child. All the mysteries and thrillers and whodunits and funny stories and so on that I would love to have read but weren't available. So I wrote my first story, sent it off to a publisher, and they wrote back to me and they said, Dear Mallory Blackman! No, thank you. <laughs> so I must admit, I had a bit of a cry and I moped about the house and I thought, OK, if they don't want it, I'll send it to someone else. Send it off to a second publisher. And they wrote back to me and they said, Dear Mallory Blackman! No, thank you. <laughs> okay. So I sent it off to a third publisher. I wrote another picture book and I sent that off. And they both wrote back to me and they said, Dear Mallory Blackman! No, thank you. <laughs> so, you know, after over two years, eight or nine books and 82 rejection letters later, a publisher finally said yes. And every time the postman arrived, I'd go charging down the stairs and tear open the letter. And he always said, Dear Mallory Blackman, no, thank you. And this one time I heard the postman and I went charging down the stairs and I tore open the letter. And it said, Dear Mallory Blackman, we would love to publish your story. And I just stood in the hall and I went, Ah! Oh my God! And I just freaked. And my husband came charging out and said, He said, What's the matter? What's the matter? I said, Ah! So, and he couldn't get a decent word out of me for like 15 minutes. And so, you know, and I still remember the, the joy I felt when that, you know, that first letter after a two year slog. But what I did. Um, I started writing these stories and I always described my characters as black, blah, 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 and I got nowhere. And then I start, what I did, I thought, am I, are these stories being judged for their content or are people saying, we just don't want black characters? So I started uh, writing the stories but omitting to say what, they, what the characters look like. And um, I was invited in by one editor, I remember, that I went in to see them and they said, um, and they were very surprised to see I was a black writer. And then they said, um, okay, so we really like the story, but um, would you mind if we made your characters white? And I said, why? And they said, well, um, it's just that we already feature a book that has a family who's black. And I said, well, how many books do you have that feature families who are white? And it went very quiet. And then she said, um, well, would you mind if we made them Asian? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I, I mean, the thing is, in, to be absolutely fair, in the end, I, they saw my face and I said, well, actually, I mean, what do you mean by Asian? Are you talking Chinese, Japanese, Indian, <laughs> Pakistani, Bangladesh? What do you mean? And, um, and then in the end, I just thought, oh, well, that's not going to happen. But they wrote to me and they said, we feel we'd be doing you a disservice if we didn't publish it the way you wanted. And they were wonderful about it. But I thought it was interesting. I, had, I was asked that in the first place. And um, so that's kind of how I got started on my writing career. So I'm just going to talk about the inspiration for some of my books, especially the teen books, because and, uh, some people, I have some adults coming up to me and saying, mm, do you think that's a suitable subject matter for teens? But I, I do, otherwise I wouldn't write it. But so I'm going to talk about Noble Conflict. The, the source of this book was sort of current affairs. And um, I, I suppose it was inspired by kind of in times of war, do the ends justify the means? How do we know what's really the truth when there's a war going on? And do we owe absolute obedience and loyalty to our rulers or only up to a certain point? And it was inspired by people like Bradley Manning and, um, and also Edward Snowden. And I, the idea of um, Bradley Manning going to his superiors and saying, I am not happy about what some of these American soldiers are doing in the Afghan war. And they said, well, that's what happens in war. And they dismissed it. And that's when he took, he took the secrets to... Julian Assange and, and WikiLeaks, and Edward Snowden's whole thing of, we should know that every single email we send and every single text we send and so forth is being stored. 
And I love that idea of a boy who thinks he's, um, he's actually working for the greater good and he's, he's a guardian, he's a cross between a sort of a, a soldier and the police and he thinks he's on the right side and he isn't. And in fact, I recently had an email from Frank, Frank Cottrell Boyce and this is what he said about my book. Really, I hope he doesn't mind me reading this out. Really, really enjoyed Noble Conflict. I've, I like the two reallys, thank you, Frank. <laughs> I've read a lot of YA recently and was getting depressed about the moral predictability of it all. There are some bad guys running the world, but don't worry, you're a good guy. So it was a real joy to come across something that puts you in the wrong shoes. Also, you've got the male bonding team thing that really nailed down. So thanks, Frank. And, uh, and, for, and that, for me, that book was about the whole thing about we're, being, we're always told not to tell tales. But when Casper finds out that actually the people he's fighting for are torturing the ones and, and doing really horrible things to the ones that they're capturing, these insurgents, and they always claim the higher moral ground because they use stun guns, etc., and not lethal weapons, and the other side are using lethal weapons. But then he gets to find out that actually his side are a lot worse, and he then has to decide whether or not he's going to blow the whistle. So I'm going to show you a trailer. If we have time at the end, I'll read a little bit from it, but I want to kind of keep going because I do want to leave time for questions. So these are just some of my um, other books that I've written, and Noble Conflict is actually my 60th one, but these are some of my other ones. Hacker was my fifth book, but my first novel. And Thief, I just love the idea of a girl kind of being accused of something that she didn't do. She's knocked unconscious, and when she wakes up, it's 40 years in the future and she gets to meet herself and she's become really bitter and evil and twisted and it all started from when she was accused of something she didn't do. And, um, and I just love that idea. And, and one I want to talk about in particular is Pickup Boy. And this came about because I read a newspaper article where a doctor was saying that we'd have to start using animal organs because there's such a shortage of human donors. And actually, can I just ask, how many people here, if you needed a kidney transplant, God forbid, how many people here don't like the idea of having it from an animal? Hands up. Who doesn't like the idea of having it from an animal? Okay, quite a few. How many people here don't mind the idea of having it from an animal? Hands up. Okay, it's usually the other way around, but... That's really interesting. Can I ask, how many people here have a donor card? Okay, excellent, quite a few. Okay. And you see, that's what I try and do with my books. I try and latch onto a particular theme that everybody can relate to. And, and with Pick Up Boy, it was that idea of what would you do if you needed a heart transplant and the only way you could get one was from, a, from a, an animal. And this is Cameron's dilemma, and he, his dad, in desperation, writes to a doctor who says, I can give your son a heart, but it will be from a genetically modified pig. And that came about because in this article there was a place called, I think it was, is it Immutran in Cambridge? Uh, where they were, were breeding these pigs genetically modified pigs, so when the sows were pregnant, they'd inject the sows' embryos with uh, human DNA, so there was less chance of our bodies rejecting them, but they couldn't get a government license. And I thought, oh, what a really interesting idea for a story. So I wrote the book, and then I was lucky enough to write the first four episodes of the um, <coughs> serial. So that was Pig Heart Boy. And another one I want to talk about now is, uh, which is actually inspired by the past, the present, and, and kind of what I would hope for for the future, so Noughts and Crosses series. 
Now, um, this book came about because from the time I started writing, I was always being criticised for not writing about racism. You should be writing about racism, Laurie. You should be writing about racism as if that was the only thing I was qualified to write about, being a black writer. Oh my God, it got on my nerves. So, um, but by the, I, I wanted to have a body of work behind me, so I thought, I'd written my 49th book, and I thought, okay, now I'm ready to write about racism. So Lords of Crosses is my 50th book. And, um, and I thought, I, right, I'm gonna do this. And it was kind of inspired by a number of things, the death of Stephen Lawrence, need to deal with some things in my past, things that I thought I had dealt with, but in okay. fact I hadn't, all I'd done is I'd buried them. And so, um, and you know, real, real life incidents, like the first time I traveled first class on the train, and the ticket inspector accused me of stealing the ticket, because what are you doing in first class? And I remember in the history lesson I said to my teacher, um, how come you ever talk about black scientists and achievers and inventors? And she said, because there aren't any. And I thought, I'm sure that's not right, there must be. But of course, I didn't know any better, and I didn't know any better until my 20s, when I found a black bookshop in Islington, and I could actually, and I asked where all my money went, buying all these books to learn about sort of black history and black achievers and inventors, etc. Um, and that, I have that as a scene played where Callum, um, the Norton, it says to the cross teacher, why do you never talk about, why do you never talk about Nort achievers? And, teacher says because there aren't any and that was direct I mean and the thing about this book is when people said to me before are you in any of your books I'd always say no you must be kidding it's all my characters are just from my imagination but of all the characters I've created in all my books the character whose personality is closest to my own is Callum's because a lot of the stuff that Callum goes through especially at school and his t sort of younger teenage years is absolutely true and based on stuff that happened to me so it's a bit of a cheat really <laughs> so um, but that's where that kind of character came from but Callum then goes on, uh, when through force of circumstances he gets booted out of school, and he, his brother is a part of the Liberation Militia, this terrorist group, they call themselves Freedom Fighters, and he joins this terrorist group, and then they're tasked with ki kidnapping Sefi, so he, and they've been best friends forever, so he has to decide whether or not he's going to do it, and he does. Now when the book first came out, I was invited to Ireland, I was doing a talk in Dublin, and a woman in the audience took me to task about that particular scene, and she was not happy with me at all. And she was saying, you've written your book <coughs> as if it's a contemporary novel, as if that sort of thing would happen nowadays. And it most certainly wouldn't. She said, it might have happened in the southern states of America, and it might have happened in South, uh, apartheid South Africa, it might have happened in the southern states of America in the 50s, uh, but it certainly wouldn't happen now. And so you should have written it as a historical novel. So I tried to explain to her why I'd written it as a, a contemporary novel, and then a few months after that, we had the business at Holy Cross Primary School in Belfast, in the Ardoin region, and where you had primary school girls, four, five, and six, going to school, and they had to walk, a Catholic girls having to walk through a Protestant area, and they had bags of excrement and vomit and urine chucked at them, and they had fireworks chucked at them, they were being spat at, etc. And I remember watching that on the news because it was really shocking. And I thought, I, remember, I wonder if that woman remembers what she said to me about that would never happen nowadays. And here it was, and it was happening on our doorstep. It was happening in, um, in Belfast, and it really was shocking. So for me, I, 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 I must admit, I do love writing contemporary novels and science fiction because I like to try and tap into kind of what might be going on at the moment and things that will, and what I want to do with my books is I certainly don't want to say to teenagers, this is the way you, could, you should think, I'm not into that, and I hated books that did that when I was growing up, but what I want to do is raise topics for debate and for discussion and for them to make up their own minds about these issues, and that's really important to me in my books. 
Um, so just to talk about, I mean, so that's the whole series, Noughts and Crosses, Knife Edge, Checkmate, and uh, Double Cross. And Noughts and Crosses is about Callum and Sefi. Knife Edge is about uh, Sefi and their daughter, Callie Rose. Checkmate is when Callie Rose is sort of 16 and her uncle Jude is trying to uh, groom her to become a suicide bomber. And Double Cross is about Callie Rose and her rock boyfriend, Toby. And Toby does something incredibly stupid, which gets Callie Rose shot. And then he decides he's going to go and try and get revenge on the ones who are responsible. Now, these are just some of the foreign editions for um, Noughts and Crosses. This is the old French cover, the American cover, the Portuguese, the Japanese. This is the Spanish, um, the Italian, and the German. Now, when I started writing, um, I was told a number of people wouldn't take picture books, texts from me, because they said, we need international sales. And there's no way Europe and the rest of the world are going to take a book that features a black character. So um, after a while, I started writing older books, and I was told, OK, we'll take it for the domestic market, but don't expect to get it translated into places like Japan, etc. The first territory to take Norks and Crosses was Japan. And, um, and Japan, in fact, are the first territory outside of the UK who put on the Norks and Crosses play. So it just seems to me that, as William Goldman said, nobody knows nothing. So, <laughs> so I just, that just makes me smile wryly. These are the French covers. So they have kind of um, Callum and Sefi, Sefi and Jude, Jude and Callie Rose, and Callie Rose and Toby. So that when you line them up, it's a sort of series of faces if you put the books face out, which I've never seen done before in a series. So I thought that was quite effective. And these are just uh, some stills from the Royal Shakespeare Company when they did the production of Noughts and Crosses in 2008. And I was so lucky because I had been taken out to lunch once or twice from people interested in um, doing Noughts and Crosses, producing Noughts and Crosses. And one particular, I'm not going to say who, of course, but one particular lunch, uh, I was asked, sort of as dessert was being brought in, um, how do you feel about us making the crosses Asian? <laughs> and I said, uh, why? And, they just said, and I, the response was, oh, because we just feel it would maybe play some more territories, we could sell it in more territories if we made the crosses Asian rather than black. And I thought, lovely dessert, thank you. <laughs> but I thought, oh, well, I'll just enjoy the lunch, but it was a firm no afterwards. Um, and I just kind of, and after that, and I had, you know, and I, there was a few other things that happened, and I thought, I'm not selling this play to anybody no one to do it in any way and then the Royal Shakespeare Company got in touch with me and said um, we'd love to do it and, and I said no and then they said could you meet Dominic Cook the art who was the artistic director of the Royal Court at the time because we want him to adapt it and, and direct it and I met him and I thank God I did because I think he's absolutely amazing and he did a fantastic job so I'm going to open this up for questions so I'm just going to scoot through the other slides uh, this is a trailer for Double Cross, the fourth in this series, and this is the book, as I said, where Toby uh, has done something incredibly stupid, and Callie Rose has got shot, and he decides he's going to get revenge on the ones who did it, thinking he'll be able to get revenge and come out the same at the other end, and it never happens that way. about a boy called Dante and his, his ex-girlfriend turns up years, sort of quite a while after they've split up and says, um, here's the baby, you're the dad. 
and he didn't even know she was pregnant. And then she says, could you just look after Emma because I've got to go and get some nappies and I'll be about 15 minutes and two hours later she phones up and says, I'm sorry Dante, I can't cope, I'm not coming back. So Dante is literally left holding the baby and he was just about to go off to uni and so on and just totally changes his life. So that's Boys Don't Cry. Um, I'm going to skip through the, the, the uh, trailer because we haven't got time. And I've written some books inspired by nightmares like the stuff of nightmares. I used to have some really bad nightmares when I was getting all those rejection letters. And, <laughs> and I mean, it was every single night. So in the end, I kind of thought, I'm going to start writing these down. So I'd, every time I woke up from a nightmare, I'd write it down. And, um, and I thought, one of these days, I'm going to do something with it. And I got three books out of all those nightmares. Um, and like John, for short, is one where this boy, every time he wakes up, he's terrified. He's in hospital, and every time he wakes up, he's terrified of waking up because another part of his body is gone. So, and you find out in the story why. But anyway, so really gruesome stuff. Uh, just some images based on um, some of those nightmares. These are some of my shorter books. Um, and again, like the monster crisp guzzler, my daughter came home once and said, mum, my teacher is a monster crisp guzzler. Because they used to have great boxes they took, took in. And she said, she goes around everybody's crisps, like, oh, can I have a crisp, please? Can I have a crisp, please? So, and I instantly got this idea of a teacher who's not supposed to eat crisps because she's allergic to them. Because every time she eats them, she turns into an animal. So I went to Lizzie's teacher and I said, I've had this idea for a story because I know you love crisps. Lizzie told me you love crisps. So I wanted to turn into an animal. And Lizzie's teacher said, have her turn into a dragon. So I thought, perfect. So the, uh, in the Monster Crisp Guzzler, she turns into a dragon. Um, role models. I just very quickly want to say, uh, role models are so important as far as allowing all of our children to know what they can and can't do. I, my role models when I was growing up were people like Muhammad Ali and Martin Luther King, and those who stood up for what they believed was right, no matter what the consequences. And I had imaginary book heroes, people like Lucy, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but I, I, had, I didn't really have writers as my role models, because we never had writers into schools. And I, as I said, I didn't know they were black writers until I was in my 20s. And then when I was, um, uh, when I was getting all these rejection letters, Alice Walker came over. And, she, and I queued up for two hours to get her to sign my book. And I got to the front of the queue and I said, Alice, could you put in don't give up. And she said, I can't write that. What does that mean? And I said, I really want to be a writer, but I've had over 60 rejection letters. And she looked at me and she said, do not give up. And she wrote it. And I thought, well, I can't give up now. Alice Walker's told me you can't, you know. So, so she was a kind of real inspiration. And other sources of creativity, objects, art, and music. I was going to do an exercise with music, but we've kind of run out of time. I just want to finish off by uh, Linda James said about the panel recently that the UK is the fourth largest film market in the world, so there's no reason why we can't make films that concentrate on the domestic market. We rely too much on international sales, but other markets, and she said, don't like black people in films, which she stated means a black child will never be cast as the lead in a UK film. She says this is preposterous, and we in the UK shouldn't be constrained or asked to collude with this. Now, I had a lot of respect for Linda before this panel um, discussion. I have even more respect for her now because at least she told the truth. But just because that's the way it was in the past and that may be the way it is in the present doesn't mean that's the way it's always got to be. I was told exactly the same thing when I started writing, that I was told white children will never want to read a story that features a black child. I was told that I would never get um, any translations and foreign sales, etc. And it's all nonsense. But it needs people with courage and vision 
to realise it's nonsense and go and, and believe in what they're doing and, and do it anyway. And so I just want to finish off with a quote from Steve McQueen, because there was a report this week that said black people feel like society and not their own aspirations make them less likely to succeed in the future. One in five black children think their skin colour will make it harder for them to achieve. But as Steve McQueen, the director, says, it's about belief, it's about filling people's lungs with ambition and possibilities. When you narrow people's possibilities, then they become narrow. When you widen their possibilities, they become open. Give them the idea that things are possible because it's the truth. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to not just remember all of our children and create work that features all of our children that is inclusive, but also to be uh, not just have them in mind, so we're having the child at heart, but also remember the child that we are, our inner child, how we wanted to be included in everything. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to kind of try and make sure that happens. So let's open it up for questions. I think I've spoken quite long enough. So <laughs> going to do a sequel to Noble Conflict? <laughs> um, who knows? I mean, I must admit, after Checkmate, I thought I'm never going to do another Noughts and Crosses book, and then I did Double Cross. So never say never. Um, I might do. I, I still think there's a bit more to be told, or Rhea's story or something, so I might do. So we'll see. We'll see. Any more questions? Just behind you. Hello. Thank you for a marvellous talk. Um, I was going to ask your views on the future of reading. There's been a lot of soul-searching about digital and devices and kids, and, and how do you feel about how your readers are going to be reading, uh, and <coughs> what are the challenges, excitements? How do you feel about that whole area? Well, you know, I used to be a computer programmer, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite about it. I love my gadgets. Um, Neil says I, can't, I need an operation to take an Apple device out of my hand. That's, <laughs> Neil's my hubby. So, you know, I love my gadgets, but I think we're always going to need stories. Maybe the delivery mechanism will change, but we're always going to need stories. And I, I must admit, I do feel that in 10 years' time, or maybe even less, um, most children and teens will be reading more electronic books than otherwise. I, 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 I do feel that. I remember when my daughter was going to school, she'd be laid down with kind of like a bag of books and another carrier bag's worth. And when you can get them all on a smart device, it kind of just makes more sense. But that said, I think we have to proceed with caution on that because I've read studies that said that there's, especially with younger children, there's, there can be less reading for meaning going on um, if you're reading from a smart device, especially if it's got kind of bells and whistles and you press this and something happens and you press that. Because at the end of that, if you ask someone what the story was about, if they've read a printed book, they actually there's more comprehension going on than, the, than an electronic device. So I do think it has to be kind of very carefully handled how you do that. But I, I, I do think that, you know, perhaps the way that the, it's going to go is that we're going to have more reading going on on electronic devices. I think, actually, that's inevitable. And, and in fact, I read a study that said that a lot of, uh, well, 17% of teens uh, were quite embarrassed to be seen reading by their peers, which is kind of shocking. But they're, not, they're less embarrassed if they're reading in a, a smart device. And so that's the way around it. So for me, it's about embracing stories, which is why we've got the Yelp coming up. Because I wanted to have it in the London Film and Comic Con space. Because 
If you're, if you're into films and you're into TV and you're into computer games, then there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't be into books as well and, and have it within that space to celebrate all those different narratives. And I absolutely wanted to have the, the Yelp happen in that space. And I also want to see Stan Lee, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, next question. Hi, Angela Ferrer from Adjoin India. Like Hi. you, I read a lot when I was younger and wrote a lot of stories. And when I went to my careers um, officer at school to say that I wanted to be a journalist, she said, no, you like reading, you'll be a librarian. So, bearing in mind your Steve McQueen quote at the end, do you think that schools continue to discourage black children? And if so, what can be done about it? I think it's... What needs to be done is they need to see that there are... All avenues are open to them. So that even if a careers teacher says this, I've, had, I've got friends who, for example, one of my good friends who's an illustrator was told by her headmaster that black people don't go to art college and, and Sainsbury's were looking for supervisors. You know, so it's that kind of thing going on. So I think what it, that's why I'm very keen to go out into as many schools as possible. Because it's not just about encouraging uh, BAME children. It's also about kind of working class white children. It's about anyone who's been told you can't do it this because of your background. It's nonsense. And I, and I, and I remember going into a school once and, I, and I, this is when Missy Week, one of my books, was on the television on CITV. And I was sitting there talking about it and this... this black boy in the audience was kind of frowning at me and he put his hand up and he said so you see was on television and you wrote it and I said no I wrote the book and then it was on the television he said so someone else told you the story and you wrote it and I said no I made it up and I could see him looking at me and I, it was wonderful because he was looking at me like god you ain't all that so if you can do it I can <laughs> and, I, and I thought and I was smiling inside because I thought that is exactly the point because if I can do it you sure as hell can and I just think it's, that's, it's so important to get as many different uh, BAME um, role models and, and people into schools up and down the country, whether it's the wilds of Scotland or sort of, you know, uh, wherever in London, I think you need to get out there and show everybody that these avenues are open to everybody. It's about the, the work and the determination you have and the work you put in. And I think that's really important. And then if you do have a careers teacher saying that's not for the likes of you, then our children will know differently. So I think that's incredibly important. And just to get different role models on the television and in films and have films um, it's, you've made in this country that feature the BAME experience in this country, not imports from America. So I think that's incredibly important as well. Another question over there? When you have an idea for a book, how do you go about building it and crafting it into the whole story? Do you find it just comes to you, or is it something you take time over? And how, how do you? Do I always get an initial idea. I kind of get my story arc, and that's quite that comes to me quite easily. Um, but then what I have to do is I, I then sit down and I, I work very carefully on my characters. I do a mini biography for all my major characters, and I always plot my books out first. I do a sort of chapter breakdown for each of my chapters. And the reason I do that, how are we doing for time? Um, the reason I do that is my first novel, um, Hacker, which was my fifth book, I, when, the way I, that came about was I thought, I'm going to see if I can write a novel. So I've been, Hacker, chapter one, ta, 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 making it up as I went along. And the original story was about a girl who swaps personalities <coughs> with a computer, would you believe? And, um, and I, after eight months and 250 pages and 50,000 words later, I thought, yes, I've written my first novel. Send it off to the publisher and they said, um, could you come in to talk about it? So I thought, well, they're going to publish it, they're going to publish it. And I went in to see them and they said, um, 
we really like your writing, but we felt the end of your story had a few problems. So I thought, well, that's all right, that's cool, I can fix that. So I made loads and loads of notes while they told me why the end of my story had a few problems. And then they said, um, we felt the beginning didn't quite work. <laughs> I thought, hmm. So I made more notes while they told me why the beginning didn't work. And they said, um, we felt you needed to work on the middle a bit more. <laughs> and I came out of the meeting thinking, what did they invite me in for? Because they didn't like the beginning, the middle, or the end. But they were absolutely right, the plot didn't work. And so I went home, reread through it, realised they were right broke my heart, put the, put the whole thing in the bin, and started again from scratch. And that's when I thought, I'm not gonna waste another eight months doing something that doesn't work. And I, that's when I plotted it out, and I made it the story of a girl whose dad works in a bank, and a million pounds of the bank's money goes missing, and they have to hack into the bank's computer to try and find out who took the money and why, because why was it found in their dad's bank account? And it taught me a lesson, and after that, every, I, when I get my story, I work really hard on my characters and making sure that I've worked out the plot before I even started. And I, I graduated from the National Film and Television School, and so of course you're doing pitches and outlines and treatments and before you even start on the script. And I think actually my computer back, background helped in that as well, because you have to design programs and, and go through them and make sure they're logically consistent before you even start coding. And so I think it all feeds into it. And people say, that's quite a difference go, going from computing to writing. But actually it's not, because for me it's about logic and making sure that those steps work. So that's how I work. I always plan it out first, always, and I always do my mini biographies. Any more questions? There's one down here. I'm, I'm just really curious. Obviously, you know, both as a as a writer, but also now as the laureate, you're spending a lot of time in schools. And and when I do book tours, I find that. There's a, kids are either readers or they're not. It seems very, very binary. And once they flip into reading, they seem to be voracious. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, what you found can nudge kids into being readers and get them into that camp versus the camp where they're just, they don't think reading is for them. I think it's about finding out what they're interested in. I always say, whenever I say, uh, okay, who's not, who doesn't like reading? and a few hands go up, I will say, you haven't found the right book for you yet, because they're out there, I promise you. And I think it's about finding out what they're interested in, and if they're into computer games, they may be finding books that will kind of follow that line, like the Beast Quest books or something, so that they kind of have an adventure story and they have to follow through a certain route and then they at least a certain outcome, etc. But I, I firmly believe the, there's a book out there or there are books out there for every child. You just have to put the right book in that child's hand. And that includes comics and graphic novels. I love comics and graphic novels. When I was at school, my teacher, I was reading a Spider-Man, I think it was, walked up to me so when she saw me reading it, snatched it out of my hand and tore it up in front of me saying, don't read that rubbish. And I was furious because I knew that was my pocket money, thank you. And second of all, I thought, I'm reading, aren't I? So then I would sit there with the Guardian newspaper and the, my Batman comic inside so she'd leave me alone. But I think, you know, this, this snobbery about graphic novels and comics, etc., we need to get past because for some people that's their way into reading. So anything that gets a child into reading I think is valid. So that's how I would do it. I would kind of set a child down and say, what were you into? What kind of subject matter are you into? What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? And try and fit the book to the child accordingly. I'm afraid we're going to have to stop there. Um, I have to kind of dash and get my train. So thank you very much indeed.
she has to catch a train, so we have to let her go. I know there was a lot of excitement about this keynote speech, and um, you fulfilled that excitement and expectations thoroughly. Thank you so much, Mallory, My for being so inspiring um, and for filling our lungs with expectations and aspirations and possibilities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.